Welcome back, listeners. I know what you're all thinking. Did I miss an episode somewhere? Yes, you did, because I did. Turns out we all had a snow day last week, and now we are back in full swing for an April series, so I hope you all got some rest. Today's guest is another one of those cousin-not-cousin types. His name is David Suarez. My sister and I grew up with David and his three brothers, and when I went home for the holidays last year, I learned that Dr. Suarez, as I call him, was changing his course from medicine to apologetics. We quickly realized there was much to talk about, and lo and behold, we wound up talking about it here on Pink Salt. And we didn't stop. So we have David on for the entire month of April discussing the various points of his defense of Christianity. And we barely scratched the surface. So without further ado, here is David. Talent is cheaper than table salt. What separates the talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work. Upon learning this quote, table salt became my symbolic reminder to keep up the hard work. This developed into pink salt, the hard work that goes into successful relationships. The idea for this podcast was born of my innate curiosity about intimacy and relationships, and I wanted to include the spectrum of relationships, intimate but also familial, professional, even individual relationships finances, food, faith, you name it. The relationships that take up space in our lives are endless, yet many of us feel societally imposed taboo when those relationships get difficult and maybe need some elbow grease. Pink Salt reminds us to have grace for the people and things around us when things don't go as easily as we picture. I'm your host, Jacqueline Chantel. Let's get to work. Listen, subscribe, and leave a review. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm so good. How are you doing? I'm very wonderful. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, okay. So I read your paper and why don't you, for the guests, just tell us a little bit about why you wrote it, what it is, actually also who you are, because <laughs> this all, this all came to be because you like you came to be on the podcast because I was like when I finally saw you after years of not seeing you I was like Dr. Suarez because I always knew you to be going to school for for medicine so explain that and explain how we got to this paper yes yes of course well my name's uh David Suarez I uh I'm an old family friend I guess you know for many 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 years mm-hmm. uh, that I've known Jacqueline and I really for a very long time was planning on going to college for medicine in particular. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon or a pediatric cardiologist, uh, both of which I still think are really wonderful fields. And I love the science and research uh, currently happening there. But I think around my second, halfway through my second year of college uh, at Brown, I realized that I want to see people helped and, and feeling better but not necessarily in medicine. And so once I graduated with my degree in health and human biology, 
I'm switching my path over to seminary school. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of reasons uh, are part of the whole switch from medical research and medical clinical practice to seminary. But I think predominantly I found that when I have a conversation with somebody about God, I find far greater fulfillment in the pursuit of that truth and and understanding and helping people to see God the way that the Bible shows him, right, as this wonderful, powerful uh, creator, father. And I, I kind of just love facilitating those conversations, um, especially after months and months of questioning from predominantly non-believers or people who used to be non-believers. Now they are, but previously they weren't. Uh, I, I found great uh, joy in that process. So uh, what sparked this essay? Yes, yes. Uh, after about nine months of talking with uh, a, a friend previously, somebody who used to be uh, an atheist but no longer is, we had about nine or ten months worth of questions around the time that COVID started, actually. And uh, they just had some general questions about, you know, why would a good God allow for a pandemic? Why would a good God allow for this? That kind of stuff. Um and we had about nine or 10 months worth of three to four hour conversations uh, of these kind of questions, every possible question you could think of. Mm-hmm. And I loved it so much. Wish I recorded them, but I never did. <laughs> but I love the process so much that I tried to put the first two to three months worth of general questions into the paper so that I can have a nice place to look back on and add more information as I get more conversation. So did this person uh, transition into a believer? Yes. From that yeah, time? Yeah. Okay. They, they, after it took, you know, a while, because of course they weren't raised in, in that kind of setting um, as a Christian, but about 10 months of long questions, 11 months later, uh, they actually mm-hmm. did find that they couldn't logically reject the claims being made. And so they gave church a try. And mm-hmm. they actually, from that point on, found a really wonderful relationship with God. And they're very well established right now as a uh, as a believer. So let's talk about logic. And I guess, what's the opposite? Faith, right? Not, not so much. I guess logic and opinion uh, irrationality irrationality i think logic and, and rationality uh because the beauty of faith as described in the bible is it's a very felt and perceived and evidenced process mm-hmm. um i think the modern notions of faith might lose the beautiful original intense of faith that you see in in, in the bible uh which i really love you know because some yeah. of us have a tr- tough time having faith in something we can't feel or see or, yes. you know, experience. But I think what's great is that, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas, one of his followers, didn't believe him. Jesus said, feel the holes in my in my hands and feel the the pier, the hole in my side where the spear stabbed me, you know, like. Thomas saw Jesus resurrected. He still didn't 
couldn't understand or believe. And mm -hmm. Jesus said, you know, feel and see, you know? And so it's a very evidence-based form of faith as opposed to the... Uh, I feel like it's even further than that, though, because if you can see something and still not believe it, there is something to say in terms of like then needing to feel it and feel clearly, obviously with your hands in that sense, but feeling and listening to our bodies, our hearts, our minds are, uh, and sometimes when those things conflict with each other is something I think that you kind of do need to be grounded in some sort of faith to be able to feel. It's but true. that brings me to one of the first sort of um, moments in reading the paper where I was like, this is interesting because I personally um, do have so many questions and resistance, so much resistance towards what I understand my beliefs to be. And I always not always, but I mean, when I started thinking about this as an adult, I kind of decided that I was agnostic because I thought that that meant that I do believe that there is a God in some form and that I do believe in something and that I do have faith in something, but I'm not, but I can't see, or I'm, or I'm not like sure. Um, and you had a different definition of that in your paper. So I was like, dang, do I not know anything? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I, I will preface by saying like th these definitions can be a bit confusing, right? Yeah. I mean, even in, at the most basic level, you would think atheism, you break it down. It literally just means atheist, like not, no, no theism, no God. Right. Right. And yet that. Which I think is why I was like, but wait, I, I think that I do feel that I have a God. Right. You, you would think, but people make these things way more complex than they need to be sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's just how humans are. Sometimes yeah. like we, we try so hard to get into the nuance and nuance is important. Of course, that's what mm -hmm. my whole paper is about. Right. But you know, we also have to realize there's ways to simplify this. Yeah. You know, beautiful. Well, ways. I guess like in terms of the nuance of all the different religious beliefs that's where i struggle because it is a human thing religion and these books and these beliefs are seemingly human human humanely developed and so it and we'll get into like the evolutionary uh, aspect of, of what you talk about, but there is a part of evolution that we can't know for sure because we only have a certain span of life. Um, and so to not be sure where the, the, the beginnings of these books came from independently of what they say they came from, <laughs> um, it's like, I, I, I do believe that there is something. I'm just not sure that the something that I believe in is uh, uh, that I believe it to be true based on the books that are written. I can understand that. I think a good anthropological and historical analysis of, of these books at the times they were written can actually help us to see if something is more human inspired. Uh, versus something which truly has inspiros, like, you know, which is breathing in or breathed out, like inspiration. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why in the book of Hebrews in the Bible, it says that the word of God is uh, spirit breathed. Um, it is breathed by God through his people. And the, what I love about the Bible is it's filled with a lot of moments where a lot of people that should be these heroic humans mm-hmm. are just never the case. Yeah. You know, God is always the, the hero character yeah. who is the hero, you know, but the humans, because usually humans, if they write about themselves, they try to make themselves sound better, you know, like, yeah. oh, I beat everybody and I flipped over a boulder and I uh, created a mountain and all this stuff, right? What I love about ancient Hebrew, Judeo, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, scripture is the humans are very embarrassing and they're <laughs> wildly mm-hmm. honest about it, you know, yeah. like go to uh, Exodus where you got Moses, right? Very important character. Um, and Moses uh, is, of course, also believed to be one of the writers of Exodus, the main writer of Exodus itself. But at, as he's writing, you would think he would omit all those parts where he just did very foolish stuff. Like the fact that he's standing before the burning bush, mm-hmm. which I can t- talk about the burning bush forever because that's one of the coolest moments in the whole scripture. But he's standing before the burning bush where God is speaking to him. And Moses, knowing that it's God and hearing that it's God, and even being the first person to hear God's name, denies God five times. He says, like, no, you chose the wrong person. No, I have a, I have a stuttering problem. I can't mm-hmm. possibly be chosen by you to speak to people, right? Uh, the, I, you, I was a prince that oppressed them. Why would they now follow me? You know, and, and finally, at the fifth time, he says, just choose somebody else. I'm not the right person. And of course, um, God says, no, I send people for you. It's not you who go, but me before you. God is with him the whole time. And so Moses doesn't have to worry about how sad and uh, pathetic he is mm-hmm. because God has given him this this beautiful path to walk and if he just trusts in the Lord he's fine but- that's actually not so surprising to me though because I feel like for people to be able to find redemption they have to not be hiding behind shame and I feel like that's true independently of religion you know if if somebody's going to uh you know step into whatever purpose they believe to have they can't they can't really truly be hiding behind the their embarrassments you would, that's a fair point in a modern context mm-hmm. um but it's a it's a it's a bit anachronistic in the ancient world the ancient world had a very serious honor shame culture you mm-hmm. could actually see this in most middle eastern cultures actually it's yeah. beautiful um, it's so severe was this honor shame culture that honor was the thing you always had to pursue, right? Unless the truth was shameful, then you would do that. But even then people would hide the truth if it was shameful and promote honor. That way they would have a greater establishment of themselves as this powerful, honorable figure, you know, somebody who's great at speaking all the time and all this different stuff. Uh, so in the ancient world, Really, the best thing and most wise thing to do would be to lie as long as it's the most honorable thing, because then people would see you as a hero, a warrior, a conqueror. People back societally, then were, societally, it, yeah, societally, socially. Um, then but again, arguably, your purpose is not, you know, as 
said by society. It's the purpose is sort of something that is uh, beyond that. And so I Uh, guess that it it is, it's in faith in whatever it is that you have, like in all of these stories, the people who these, these stories are about the people who have realized their purpose and they all have embarrassments, like you say, but I think that's part of the story is that you have to, you have to transcend that. You have to be able to like, let your demons out of the closet, skeletons out of the closet. I I think I could understand that. But I think again, knowing the context of the ancient world, this was just, this was social suicide. Uh, It's for instance, let's go to the gospels in, in the ancient context around, you know, first century middle Eastern culture, woman's testimony literally meant nothing mm-hmm. like a woman's testimony. It was just like, nobody's going to believe a woman if she says some testimony, unless like, you know, there's some men before her to say it. Right. Um, they were just disregarded. Right. And so in the scripture, especially in Luke, when he repeatedly, Luke repeatedly writes that Jesus had female followers. Number one, really big issue back then. People thought Jesus was a false prophet because he had female followers. And they're like, what kind of man has female followers? This is outrageous. Why would he do this? This is, you know, a lot of people wouldn't believe him in the first place because he had female followers. Number two, in all the gospel accounts, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all describe that the first people to witness Jesus's resurrection from the grave are women. This is like... If you want to make up a religion, you would have made it. You would have made a much better job than they did. <laughs> they chose women who literally nobody was legally or socially gonna believe legally because women's court uh, court testimony literally meant nothing, and then socially, women just were gonna be ignored. But all the gospels don't. They 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 won't lie. As shameful as it is in that ancient context, they'll tell you the truth. Women were the first ones to see Jesus resurrected. They were the first ones to have testimony of his resurrection and to tell others, you know. So what does that mean to you? Uh, That means to me and historically that if they were trying to lie about this story, they would have actually tried to lie in a way that makes themselves look better. Back then, this would have made them, them look worse and nobody would have really believed them. But I think that's what makes it a compelling story is that it like these things that are shameful in society are not something that they were ashamed of in some sense, but more so it's on the matter of truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like if they just wanted to make up a story, Mm -hmm. then they would have made a much more compelling and believable a story that people would have listened to because it was men. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to avoid as much as I can modern contextualizations being uh, you know read mm-hmm. into it back then this was just social suicide this this was such a by societal standards foolish thing to do so still honor shame culture the fact that they wrote this stuff knowing how despised and rejected it would be is a sign that it is far more likely it's true than that it's false because if it was false then that makes no sense in any <laughs> cultural context. And, and it still wouldn't be believed 
And it, and it still wouldn't yeah. be believed, right? Yeah. Like, but it, so, but what does that mean to you? Like, and I know that you just said that you don't want to modernize it, but we do live in 2022, and there is, you know, there is a foundation in the society patriarchy. of the yes, and so, you know, how what does that make what do you believe about that is is there something wrong or bad or true about the patriarchy that is believed in these books you know there's a there are endless little quips on instagram about how god is a woman and that is something that people need to believe in order to believe in a god um which you know, is against one of the 10 commandments. I don't know which one, but how do you feel about that? That, that? That's a very fair question. Actually, I think number one, um, you know, God is, when we say he, we're not saying he has like, you know, genitals. We're not trying to say that he has some sort of, as a spirit, he has like male parts. He is just a title, which he uh, uses to describe himself both as the father and the son um and technically the holy spirit but this is a title he chooses and so we should not ever change that title that he chooses uh, but did he choose it or did he say i am god well he said that i and am then everybody else said that then, he was he the people who wrote the book let, let's let's test that out was jesus god according to your diagram <laughs> little triangle <laughs> the circles yes right yeah so if I, as a Christian, believe in Christ, and Christ said he is the son of the father, and he speaks of father as he over and over, then logically, the father is a he for who the one decided who, that he is a he. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. For he is the one who's decided himself, and he is God. He literally can, if he decides it, it, it is so. Mm -hmm. um, and so following it logically believing Jesus, which I think most people, ironically enough, even the more progressive Christian circles and, and new age circles, most people will still hold that Jesus is God. Um, to hold Christ as Christ, as a Christian, would inherently mean that we believe that which Christ said. That being said, on the matter of the patriarchy in a more modern context, the patriarchy, as it's been used for forms of silencing people mm -hmm. is, is legitimately dangerous right if you have one who states that he has the right to rule over a woman specifically and only because he is a man without any semblance of wisdom or or truth uh, as given by the word of god in that man's life then this is just a true misuse of that position which the lord has made man for that being said, I do follow, and I know there's egalitarian, complementarian views to Christianity. I follow a bit more into the complementarian view, which mm -hmm. is to say that um, men biologically, psychologically, um, the way that God has constructed them is different from women um, biologically, psychologically, and so in that they have complementary roles that have equal value, but different function, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, but again, that being said, I think it is very clear in scripture that just stating one is a man and that that that's it without giving any form of wisdom or a claim to 
being loving or following God or knowing what he says about honoring the image of God on a different person. You can't mm-hmm. just uh, justify your power simply by saying, I'm a man, that's it. You know, I think the secularization of culture and but the buffet style picking from the, the Bible is kind mm-hmm. of the issue, right? We have people who will say they're not Christian, but they kind of like that part of the Bible where it says like, you know, uh, wives listen to your husbands, right? Or wives submit yourself to your husbands, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They're not Christian, but they'll take those little parts and say, oh, that's mine. Um, and completely ignore the verse right after that says, and husbands submit yourselves to your wives, right? Um, and so I think it's really important to not go to the Bible and treat it like a buffet where you mm-hmm. just kind of take the things you like out of it and then you just ignore all the other parts that make you uncomfortable. It's it's really hard not to modernize so many of these things because even as you're saying that, it's like that is the mechanism of cancel culture. To listen to something in a podcast or to see something on the internet and to buffet the pickings that you want to use against somebody. And then the world that sees it sees that one little snippet that they don't agree with and not the thing that comes right after, which is the context. It's true. And context is king. I mean, it's difficult to try and, you know, separate yourself a bit from the current situation right here, right now, and try to think, let's think about their culture back then, or let's think about Mm -hmm. that exact moment, or let's think about that whole chapter instead of these two sentences. Yeah. Of course, also, I would stay on the topic of cancel, cancel culture. I can't stand it as a function of some sort of retribution or modern champion vengeance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think scripture is very clear about the fact that we do have to hold people accountable for their, for wickedness and sin. That is true, but we have to do it in a loving way. And we also have to learn how to forgive people mm-hmm. and to truly love and forgive somebody. You do have to actually work hard at not keeping this huge record of past. Yeah. Wrongdoing. Yeah. Uh, which we've seen Philippians. And so the fact that people want to say they're loving and then while they're saying that they're going to look at somebody's tweet from 10 years ago, mm-hmm. like Frankenstein monsters, you know, take it apart by part and, and put it back together into this thing and cancel them and say they're a bigot, they're hateful, whatever, whatever. It, number one, completely ignores what scripture says about forgiveness and, and true uh, acceptance of a person as they are, but also with a desire that they improve. Number two, in a, in a more secular sense, it assumes that people just can't change. Like that person 10 years ago, exact same person they are today. You know? Well, but what you're saying, I'm, I'm even, I'm applying it back to the conversation of, about shame, particularly in oneself, because you do over and over also hear that you can't truly love someone unless you love yourself. But if you apply what you just said to that concept, it really does make sense because to believe that no, that like that person can't change means that you can't change. And to decide that you don't forget what that person did 10 years ago means that you're kind of like hiding and sitting on the things that you did 10 years ago. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, you can't fully let go and forgive unless you have outed the the shame that you have and no and therefore no longer have shame in it yeah i i can understand that i will say it's it's a little bit apples to oranges comparing the shame for some of the old testament uh, new testament people 
Because in, in their case, they would but, straight up. Like, I mean, I don't know those specific stories, but again, my, I like, okay. So for instance, you, you don't want to modernize, but my experience in the same church as you is that everybody always wanted to get to church by the time to like early enough to like sing the praise and worship. I never wanted to, I, I was happy to get there at the last song and sit down and listen. And I always had so many notes because I was, I like was applying those stories to the context in which I was living in. And I don't really, I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a point, but I don't really, uh, I can't necessarily believe in it unless there is context for, for today, because otherwise then it's just a book that was written millennia ago. Oh, sure. No, I agree with that. Uh, when I, when I say I try not to modernize it, I'm saying I try not to modernize my interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. My application though, must be appropriate to each circumstance and situation. The beauty of it, giving authority and instruction means that I must through the Lord have the wisdom to apply it to my current life today. So I totally agree with you there. More so the interpretation, right? Okay. Um, taking modern notions of culture and uh, how I interact with people around me and then reading that into the text instead of taking the text and reading out of it into my life. Yeah. So how do you, uh, I mean, you are Christian. So mm. I, I inherently, I know what your answers are to these questions, but there is, there is the, the question of these other belief systems and books that people follow their lives ba- based in. And um, why is that wrong? Yes. Yes, of course. Um, so as a standard matter of procedure, I think the most important thing to do is to go through each of these systems and see if they're internally and externally consistent, right? And to specify internal consistency is saying within the book that they follow, is there a consistent message, theme, instruction, story, narrative? Is it internally consistent? And then externally consistent, is this actually a, you know, logical way to examine the world around us, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, as a Christian, and especially through all the research I've done and I'm continuing to do, I have found that Christianity, as in that Christianity which follows scripture, is the most internally and externally consistent explanation for the world. Mm-hmm. And also, it, like, it's just, it's, it's whole, it's complete, it's somehow, despite the thousands of years it took to write all of scripture, it is amazingly comprehensive and consistent in what it's saying. Um, If you go through other texts or philosophies or beliefs, they're just not consistent. And if they're not logically consistent, they're contradictory in themselves, then I don't really see any value in the truth claims it would make. And so as a Christian, if God, Yahweh, the great I am, um, the three in one, if he is the one who is God, then any other religion which does not recognize him is false. And I, this can sound harsh. I totally understand that. But just to give a good image of what this is, 
if I saw somebody drinking what they thought to be soda or what they thought to be water, but was actually poison. The modern day would say that I am to affirm them in what they're doing because they like the taste of it. Even if it kills them, I have to affirm what they're doing and tell them to continue doing it. What the Bible says is to not affirm them, but to love them, which in biblical love is to see somebody who's literally on the road to death and saying, don't do that. That's poison. It will kill you. And letting them know, even if it tastes good, even if you like it, even if that's your favorite poison drink in the world, put it down. Here is the true living water that, and by this you will live and not die. Mm -hmm. And so as harsh as, as it sounds, when I say all these other religions, philosophies, and, and worldviews, if they are not consistent with the Lord, that they're false, it's because if I, believing as a Christian, see somebody doing something that goes against God or that they don't believe in God, and I don't give them a chance to hear about the truth of Scripture, then that's, number one, a sign that I don't actually love them as I ought to because I'm not warning them about what's coming. Um, and number two, I don't care enough about them to have a conversation. I would, I would rather affirm them than love them. And I think that's not right. I guess my question to that is, who are you to tell them anything? <laughs> because, because you have a belief system. Not, I mean, you, but, you know, you, the, in, in the general sense, that person, because that poison that you're talking about them drinking is the, is Jewish, Muslim, uh, atheism, any of these other belief systems. And so you grew up in the church mm -hmm. and I'm curious to know when you sort of like knew that that was you, that's what you believed. And when you started, because, you know, the foundation of debate is that, you know, everybody else's, uh, argument so that you can state your own yeah. and, all of these other uh, people following religion, anybody who has a religious belief probably doesn't know their books of belief in the same way that you do or many other scholars. You just believe it because you believe it because you grew mm -hmm. up in it because your parents told you to. Um, and so if somebody believes what they believe and there's somebody telling them that's the wrong thing to believe, both of you feel that you have stake in the truth, which is your stake in the power of your sovereignty, like your own individual sovereignty. So for somebody to tell you that's wrong, it's like, I mean, kind of like, okay, well, thanks. Bye. Do you know what I mean? Of course, of course. And that's where the whole beauty of true discussion occurs, right? If I'm going to speak with an atheist who believes that there's no such thing as objective truth or objective morality, right, um, which is obviously the case of most atheists because of their belief system, they don't believe in a God, therefore they don't believe there is some objective law which tells us what is right and wrong, it's all just subjective. Uh, or they'll say there's no such thing as real truth, it's all just opinion. Uh, I would logically say, that's wonderful, let's have a discussion, is what you just said true? And they would say, yes. And then I said, well, you said there's no such thing as objective truth. 
So you've destroyed your point by making an objective truth claim about not believing in objective truth. And then, you know, we can facilitate conversations mm -hmm. there, right? Um, again. So the then what if we all just agree that there's just subjective truth? Sorry, we can hold that. Oh, of course. <laughs> we'll of course. In that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love, I love those ones. Um, so if we all agree that, you know, uh, that's basically to summarize in a modern context, your truth is your truth, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, there's the truth and there's your truth. So, so that's kind of the issue though, right? If we, if someone says, you know, you do you, your truth is your truth, you know, find your truth. Then I would ask, is it sub, is it objectively true that everybody's subjective truths are true? And they'll say, yes. And I'm saying, so you're saying there is a subjective truth that there are no subjective, there are no, there are no objective truths, only subjective ones. And they'll say, mm -hmm. yes. And I'll say, that's a paradox. Right. Because now you're making an objective truth claim that everybody's truth is valid. So I'll ask, is that your truth or is that everybody's truth? You, you see, so it, it becomes very easily paradoxical and self-defeating. Yeah. I mean, it, it. I understand what you're saying, but I also think and this isn't a but to like rebuttal it because that makes sense to me. But the thing that is so hard for me to, in that I said earlier that there's so much resistance to is that then that means that there is an objective truth and that what you're saying is that the objective truth is the word of God. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, I don't know why this might be an aside, but the way you said that reminded me of Jordan Peter. Uh, I love Jordan Peterson. Isn't he great? And, and his daughter him. is amazing. Yeah, oh my Michaela. God. Yeah, Michaela, she's yeah. she's incredible. Uh, yeah. Her spiritual experience finding God a couple months ago that like from the dream to her scriptural analysis to like just the whole process is beautiful. Did she and write about it or is it in a podcast? Because I podcast. haven't. OK, because I haven't uh, really followed him in a while. I've, I've read um, the 10 rules for life or the 12 rules for life, like right when it came out. And I kind of haven't been I've been too busy to like pay too much attention to what's going on with the Petersons. But, um, I do, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that I love so much about Jordan Peterson is his ability to apply the biblical stories into the context of today. Oh, true. True. No, he excels at that. I think Jordan Peterson and his daughter, more so his daughter, but as well himself are really excellent at seeing scripture and through their psychological lens, they're able to see the consistencies psychologically and then the beautiful inconsistent mm -hmm. or like the beautiful non-intuitive, unintuitive yeah. scripture, right? Like, um, you know, the, the fact that God makes his name to be I am, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like in any cultural and psychological setting, that just makes literally no sense, right? At, at the time around you know, the Israel, well, before they were Israelites, around the time of the early Hebrews, every other culture around them, just basically everywhere on earth, the, the gods they had, had nouns for names, mm -hmm. maybe even potentially adjectives, but mostly nouns like God of famine, God of hunger, God of right. farming, God of fertility, all that stuff. And so I think what I really like about their psychological analyses is that they can actually show the things that are so strange that it almost seems like it couldn't have come from human psychology because it's so divorced from normal human thinking. 
and cultural human thinking at the time. The fact that God, because, you know, Moses says, like, if I'm going to go talk to these people, who am I going to tell them sent me? You know, and God says, uh, which we now call Yahweh, um, because he says, I am that I am, or more specifically, I am who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And the fact that God's name is a verb, right? It's not like this single uh, noun that you know starts and ends, but it's just a present tense verb that's constantly active mm-hmm. is so beautiful and so confusing. So well, confusing. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if what I'm about to say is going to make any sense, but I think it might make sense to you is that like that makes so much sense to me because scientifically biologically we are all i'm made up of the same things as this curtain i just have a conscience so mm-hmm. that i am who i am or i am that i am is is just like we're all the same thing so even when you break it down to like the god of blank 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 if there is one god and he is everything then it still makes sense not necessarily though the, the, that um well the thing that jordan peterson talks about is like i think he talks about i don't know if it's you're like your demons or if he says your gods or whatever but they're all like parts of you that make up the whole but the god is that god is still in everything is that you know he is in you he is in me he is in these people who do or don't believe so then they it's just a matter of believing in a certain sense, to but your... also the way the Bible describes it is that God, while being omnipresent, we, we, we cannot say that God is omnipresent, but also everybody is divine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because God does have a nature which is holy. <clears throat> that is to say, it is completely set apart from anything in his creation, which is why he tells us to not make any great yeah. image, right? Because to state that the builder of a castle is a brick in its wall is just like, is just false, right? A brick in the wall of a castle cannot be the builder of the castle. The builder must be one who is removed and different from his creation. In that same way, God is unique. He is spirit, right? He is different. Um, he's immaterial in, in, in his spiritual sense. And so though the atoms and elements which comprise a curtain or a wall rug and our skin could be similar, the thing which is truly different is God's spirit, which is beyond material um, or specifically immaterial. And so. But he did make all of them. (laughs) Oh, yes. Like it is like he did make us and he did make the curtain. It's true. It's true. But I don't think I am the same as a curtain in that I. Uh, I number one, I'm not divine. Well, I I think you're li- thinking of it literally, and in my head, I'm thinking of it more of like the idea that came forth, or like that he is alive in us, and therefore in the things that we are the builder of. So then he is omnipresent. I can understand that. I think though, when God says, you know, uh, and or Yahweh. When he says that, he's not trying to tell us how we are. God is telling Moses who who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to say I am who I am, because the the most real definition is I am who I am. Uh, God is saying I am the 
I am the one who simply exists without any dependence on anything else. He is the pre-existent one. There is nothing before him and there is nothing which comes after him, which mm -hmm. he needs. All that is, is his that he owns. And we cannot say that there is anything in nature which comes after, uh, you know, that, that like we can make that yeah. is truly the embodiment of him. This is reminding me of um, Adam and Eve, the place, the, the tree, the tree. What is it called? The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes. Mm -hmm. So talk, talk about that. So I can develop some questions because I, I remember reading it and being like, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> Like, it seems like they were set up for failure. And then that's, that begs the question of like free will basically of course. is I love where that came, where that went for me. Yeah. I think, I think it's a really important question actually. Um, and so, yeah, I'll start with the garden of Eden. So what I love about the garden of Eden is we have Adam, you know, man, and then Eve, you know, that he was a woman of man um, reigning in the garden uh, as these humans to enjoy the beauty of that garden. And the Lord has still allowed them to be tempted by Satan in the same way that all of us are allowed to be tempted by Satan. Because let's be honest here. If God only ever allowed Adam and Eve to stay in the garden with God being the only option, then that's not really free will. A choice. Yeah. It's not a choice, right? Um, and therefore, the love they have for God, can you even really say it's love if he's the only option? But God is so sovereign that he actually allows his creation to have a choice. God puts that tree there and does and tells them that it's not good to eat of it. But he's also not going to remove from them the choice to see what, what it's like to be with him or to literally try and decide for themselves by their own standards what is good and evil, right? But don't you say at some point that he still has his heart broken if, if and when people don't choose him? I would said say something that, about you break God's heart somewhere. I can't remember. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do believe that God delights in those who delight in him because scripture does say that, right? And so it is surely a great sad moment when somebody who could go to God, you know, uh, d decides to not pursue him and rather decides I'm to decide what's right for myself. And so I'm sure there is a grieving uh, of the Lord because we know that uh, we can grieve the Holy spirit, which is that, you know, that third person of the Trinity. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm sure there is grieving, but in that there's also nothing which is necessarily taken away from God, right? Like mm. all that is, is his. And of course, it's so sad when somebody decides to not pursue the truth when they see it because it's uncomfortable, right? Um, and, and I think when it comes to free will, the very fact that God put that tree there is a sign that they had a choice. Yeah, that's fair. I like that. Yeah, because if they didn't have that tree, then I think the question of free will would be a much easier answer in the opposite way. You know, like, oh, yeah. you just, you never had 
a choice to love or hate God. You could only ever have him. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the truth, pursuing the truth is uncomfortable. Extremely. In what ways is that uncomfortable for you? Yes. Well, so the very nature of scripture is filled with, of course, a lot of uncomfortable moments, but also trying to speak with people about scripture uh, when they're outside of the Christian context can be difficult because you'll meet many people who say they will follow Christianity if it's logically proven to you know, be true or it's more logical than anything else. But then you go through an entire discussion with them and they'll say, I know that all the things you said are logical, but they make me uncomfortable. Therefore, I don't believe it. And so we come to what I love Dr. Frank Turk, incredible Christian apologist. He has cross-examined on YouTube and he, uh, on other podcasts as well. He's this great Christian debater, and he speaks to people who have a truth quest versus a happiness quest. And if you're pursuing happiness alone and you don't care what is true as long as you're comfortable, that's dangerous because you're setting yourself up for destruction, right? You literally don't care if something's true. You just want to be comfortable, uh, which is why so many people so easily turn a blind eye to you know, awful things in this world. Um, and so those things which are against God, because they're like, I know what God says, but I'd rather be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, you could pursue a life which follows truth. When you see that God is true and his word is consistent and you know that he is God and therefore he knows more than I do, you're utterly and completely destroyed. You know, I- But I, like, what for you specifically has been uncomfortable? Oh, sure. Um. I think it would have to be just constantly dying uh, every single day. You know, it's, it's something we're called to do. But for me personally, there's moments when I have uh, pride and, and it's really uncomfortable when I study all this stuff and read all, all these papers. And then I talk to somebody and I actually have to remember, I might know these things, but before the Lord, I, I'm a fool who is a sinner. And so to think of myself as different from the person I'm talking to in terms of sin is completely and utterly foolishness, right? And so the most uncomfortable thing in pursuit of truth is the constant painful process, good process, but painful process of being humbled and remembering like this person might not be a Christian uh, and they might even say awful things about me or to me, but for the sake of God, if I can speak with them and I can remember that I'm also a, a wicked sinner, then we can have a real conversation. But it's wildly uncomfortable, you know, because in culture, we, we have pride for ourselves and for the stuff we know and the good things we do, right? Um, mm-hmm. But before a righteous and perfect, holy, all-knowing God... I might have read three more books than somebody else, but I'm not some like, you know, brilliant person who's just going to epically own them in a debate. That's, you know, that's foolishness. And I think that's not healthy. But I think for me, it's really uncomfortable to constantly, uh, you know, have to make sure I'm not trying to allow some foolish pride to come up and, and put somebody down. In discussions with people, what I really want to do is to elevate them. That way they can see how good God is. 
and how wonderful and perfect he is and not see how smart they think I am or how good they think I am. Newsflash, I am not good at all. That's why that's why I need Jesus. <laughs> that's that's kind of the whole point. And so I think that, you know, uh, how did C.S. Lewis talk about it? C.S. Lewis, when he became a Christian at the age of like 33 or whatever, a guy behind um, all the Narnia books and the Great Divorce and all of his Christian apologists. I wrote, I wrote about Narnia in my notes. It's so good. I somewhere, adore, yeah. I adore it so much. Read about it in like a whole college class. It was great. Um, but he speaks to how when he became a Christian, he didn't realize how much more grief he would have as a Christian than he did as an atheist. Because um, as an atheist, you don't really have to think about ultimate reality, right? You don't have to think about the person who you see on the side of the road who's asking for money as being technically, you know, equally as rotten or sinful as yourself. In a general cultural sense, you could say, I have more money. I have a better job. Who the, why, why would I have to care about somebody who's lesser, right? Um, but before God, you know, as a Christian, you're not like better than them. You don't get into heaven because you did more good things. You get into heaven because you pursued the Lord and loved him and trusted that Jesus was the son of God raised from the dead. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't, we, we can never have enough good boy points to get into heaven. Like, Oh, I gave a million dollars to somebody. It's like, that's cool. doesn't mean anything though, but you know, that's cool. So I think um, the, the truth is that there's a lot of grief that you experience as a Christian, right? Um, because then you're thinking about all your friends or family who don't believe and, and you so dearly want them to hear the truth. And not just for the sake of heaven, as great as that is, but for the sake of right here, right now, the beauty of Christian life, the beauty of being able to have the peace of God, which passes all understanding, to be with you in those moments that are happy or sad. Because as a Christian, whether you're happy or sad, you have joy. And joy is a thing which does not change. Happiness and sadness do, but joy does not. So do you think that it's, uh, like, how do you navigate friendships with people who are not Christian? And is it possible for there to be a marriage that lasts and thrives if there are two, if they're made of two people in different religions? Uh, that's a great question, actually. Th this is really important. And these are one of those modern topics I actually do really like to get into. Um, so for the first part, I will say like probably 75%, like 70% of my friends, my close friends are not Christian. Um, you know, like from high school and from college uh, over at Brown. Brown's a very liberal school with a lot of anti-Christian sentiment. And so, as you can imagine, a great deal of my friends are not Christian. Um, uh, and you can have totally healthy, good friendships with non-Christians. But also, as a Christian, when I do speak with them and we get on some matters which, you know, are upsetting or more controversial, we will speak uh, and be more upfront and honest with each other because we're friends. Mm -hmm. And in that, I, I won't skimp out as much as is wise and logical on what I believe is true about this given instance, you know, this, this very important topic. And then uh, to move from friendship, which is a bit more easy to deal with different religions, to a marriage. Um, of course, marriage is a very significant thing right? Like you're two people becoming one flesh. That's a very powerful thing. And when 
you have literally different baselines, different foundations for what you believe existence is and what it means to be like, uh, you know, a human being, then it's really difficult to have very healthy, truly healthy, not just superficially healthy, but truly healthy uh, long-term romantic relationships when the religious beliefs are different, right? Like if I were to date a Muslim girl, and I know in the Quran, it probably would not support that. But as a Christian, if I were to date um, a, a girl um, who was Muslim following the Quran, we have completely different views of who Christ is, right? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, the Messiah, um, who was tortured uh, to death, rose again uh, for the salvation of all people. She would believe, according to the Quran, that Jesus is um, just a good prophet who is the Messiah. He wasn't tortured, but um, according to the Quran, God switched Jesus out with Judas and just threw Judas on the cross instead. Uh, and then instead of having salvation through Christ, you have salvation if you just do enough good things sometimes. Um, we have completely different foundational beliefs. And so I would not be able to go to a mosque. And she would not be able to go to, you know, a, a, a Christian evangelical church or whatever church I would go to at the time. Um, and that stuff is if the, if both of those people are truly following their beliefs, then that relationship doesn't have much to stand on. Now, if both of them are just nominally, you know, part of that belief, like, oh, I'm kind of like nominally a Christian and this person's kind of by, just by name, you know, a Muslim girl then I guess we could have a relationship, but we don't really have much of a religious ground in the first place. So there's not much, you know, competing there mm -hmm. because we were only ever this thing, not because we believe it, just because we have it as a title, you know? Yeah. It's, it hasn't really been claimed as a personal thing. It's more like just a cultural thing that you've accepted. Right. So then do you think it's possible to genuinely convert? Yes. Oh, yes, for like sure. Like genuinely, because like theoretically, you do have this relationship with a Muslim girl. And um, what if you convert? I mean, I've for as much as I've read through both the Quran and the Hadith and also, you know, like um, Al-Salim and and, you know, uh, other parts of the book, I just haven't seen logical consistency. Um, I'm well, really not, not saying that you not saying, I, I guess I'm just saying like, you wouldn't, but that like, you know, if somebody chooses to do it, then have they like really converted because there wasn't, would they convert from something that they truly had stake in? And then if they did quote unquote convert, how do you trust that that is true? I give people the benefit of the doubt, to be honest. I do think because in a, in a, in any sense, let's say they weren't tr truly, you know, this theoretical me wasn't truly a Christian, right? Mm -hmm. I would still have a belief system. I would just be either atheist or agnostic with a questionable Christian title, right? Um, that is still a belief system. And so there is still a conversion. People are in no actual sense ever truly, you know, Danilo. Like Without, yeah. You know, the, 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 there's no sans belief, right? There mm -hmm. is always some type of belief. Either it's belief that everything's meaningless, per nihilism, uh, except for the claim that everything is meaningless, which is meaningful, apparently. 
sorry, I had to throw that in there just for anybody to hear. This, just to this is very much uh, Sam. Sam. Uh, what's is his name? Sam Harris. Is Sam he, Harris. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 You're yeah. a funny guy. Funny books. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> funny, books. funny guy. <laughs> um, let's just say, you know, like I think that would be technically a true conversion. And and I do hold, you know, that if somebody says they converted, uh, I don't really have much to say against them as long as they've like read the book and said, you know, I'm a Muslim now. I'm mm-hmm. like, dang. At that point, I'd say that that conversion is more clear of than but where, what they of, were before. Um, yeah. Than what they were before or for the person they're dating because they might have been raised up in a culture of it and never really you know gone beyond that nominal label and this person made an active choice to right and so i'm right. like i'd be more assured of this person's conversion than that person's culturally based thing unless of course she like i guess i i only question it because i feel like uh um sex is one of those temptations that are very strong that I think people do a lot of crazy things for. So it just seems like because it's in the context of marriage to trust it is like, okay, well, what is your motivation for wanting to marry this person in the first place? That's, that's a really important point, actually. I think, (laughs) you know, I mean, I I think a lot of people, uh, not as much as it used to be, but like, I think 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, the whole like ring and spring Christian culture, you know, where it's like, I met this girl and then it's been three months time to, you know, take it to the next level and get married. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's definitely some danger to that. If they say it's because like, oh man, I really want to have sex. I really want to have sex. And so I'm just going to get married ASAP. That way I don't feel bad about having sex, which Paul does address this actually, I think in like Romans or one of the New Testament letters. Um, He says like, yes, it is technically more wise to marry to prevent yourself from burning with passion. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we pursue wisdom and actually loving the person we're with, then we wouldn't, we'd realize there's kind of something up with me if, this desire to uh, have sex with them is so strong that I'll put it into making a really extremely significant commitment like marriage, right? Because th- that's kind of why the, the scripture speaks about waiting until marriage for sex. If you want to establish, and of course, I'm, I'm not saying this with any judgment, trust me. Uh, this is something which is so common, right? This is like, but, but just from a scriptural analysis, if I'm going to have this person as the one with whom I join and make one flesh, as God calls it, and I do that for the sole sake of a single act, which usually doesn't last too long, causes a little bit of a dopamine bump, and then after that, you know, that's it, then that's kind of questionable, right? Because I've turned this like standard reason for our relationship to go to the next level to be... Um, I want to have sex with them because pleasure is good. You know, that, that gets kind of close to like caveman brain, right? Like ooga booga, I want sex. And we have to be careful of that. If we really love this other person, we should try really hard to see them as more than a sexual object. Sex is good. The Bible literally has Song of Solomon, right? Like in a very honest, kind of raunchy, but, you know, very loving, erotic poetry part of the Bible, right? 
sex is very important, very loving. God made it. It's technically the first command he gave to humans, be fruitful, multiply. But we can't just use that as like the single reason why we want to speed a relationship along. Yeah. We, we have to see this person as like a whole person with emotion and value beyond the pleasure they can provide for me, right? Like I should be able to see my girlfriend, future wife, as being wonderful and lovable and incredible without needing to think about the ways that she can pleasure me. I should just think about the wonderful image of God that God has placed on her and those things which are just inexplicably wonderful, beautiful, intelligent about her to the point where I can go beyond those things and say, I just love you because I love you. You know, Um, I like you because you're beautiful. I, I I really like you because you're intelligent, but I love you because I, I love you, right? Like mm-hmm. that is a choice I'm going to make and I'm going to hold to it. If something happens and you aren't as intelligent as before because of an accident, I'm still going to love you. You know, if all of a sudden you get wrinkly and old or or something or you get disfigured, your beauty was not the reason I loved you. You know, I'm still going to love you, right? And so it's moving beyond those things to see love is this true thing where I wake up in the morning. And even if we had a fight last night, I say my emotions might not be there, but the truth is that I'm going to choose to do what the scripture says and sacrificially love you, provide for you, hear you out, be there for you because that's what love is, right? It's as often as Western culture might make it sound like butterflies in the stomach. uh, It's, it's that beautiful thing, which tells us, we got into a fight, but let's try to make this work because it's this thing we work at. It's this thing we want to see grow. And the moment I stop having feelings one day out of a thousand, you know, I shouldn't just say, all right, peace. And, you know, take a suitcase and leave. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, um, actually this just came up when you were at the beginning of what you just said, which is that there are 10 commandments one of them is thou shalt not commit adultery, but there mm-hmm. aren't necessarily commandments about uh, um, premarital sex or divorce and these other things that are like, quote unquote, sinful. So t- I wanted to ask if you would talk about, um, you know, those 10 rules versus all of the other like rules that aren't necessarily rules spelled out, but they're wrong or sinful or, you know, people place shame and blame on them. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, the 10 commandments, uh, is a really good solid set of understanding our relationship between us and God and then betwixt each other. Um, but the Torah is at like 613 rules, which includes like the 10 commandments. And so if you go through like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see all those other rules, right, about divorce and proper divorce process and uh, knowing how that happens, right? Uh, And you see some more explanation about what adultery actually is or what it looks like. So in the ancient cultural context, if you sleep with somebody, um, then at that moment, after, you know, you pay the proper thing to the other parents for the marriage, the marriage tax that they would have back then, then in a certain sense, you would be married. And so the notion of sex and marriage was not separate. It was completely and utterly, you know, one, right? Like if you had sex with somebody, you were married to them. And mm-hmm. if you just abandoned them after that and stopped providing for them, 
then, you know, well, you're wicked because back then women weren't allowed to really do much stuff for money. Mm-hmm. And so if a man has sex with a woman and then just divorces her and leaves her, then that's just wicked. You know, he just used her for his own pleasure and left her uh, to basically die or become a prostitute. Uh, and so if you look at the scripture contextually, you realize that when it has those strict commandments about divorce, it's because the the man was the one that would have to sign the certificate, right? And Jesus goes on to say, just because the man is the one that signs, you should not divorce, except for the case of sexual immorality, you should not divorce. And people back then knew why. Because back then in Middle Eastern culture, if a woman, quote unquote, burns your biscuits, you had grounds for divorcing her. <laughs> Which is awful, by the way. It's like, you know, she had a bad day, she burnt the biscuits, and now you can divorce her. But this isn't just divorce in the modern sense. Like, she could not find work unless she really, like, maybe became a prostitute uh, to make money for herself, to provide for herself. So a divorce back then is kind of a death sentence for the woman. And so when Jesus says, men, don't divorce your wives, he's saying, provide for them. Don't, don't just, like, leave them abandoned, you know, uh, because they burnt your biscuits or, or they spoke a little loud to you, you know. Have some grace and think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also adultery for the Ten Commandments is way more general than when Jesus specifies it. Because adultery is like, you know, just, you know, you, you cheated on somebody. You're, you were married to one and then you went to another um, who, uh, who was already married to somebody else. When Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's stating like lusting is like adultery, but just in your heart. You saw somebody else, you turned them into a sexual object. You completely ignored the fact that God put his image on them when he created them. That's a sin, right? Um, And so those things in a cultural context make more sense. Um, But also just seeing them in a modern day context as well. There's good application to knowing that I shouldn't just like turn every lady I see on the sidewalk into this walking sex icon and, and thinking, boy, I wonder how they can pleasure me specifically as a man, right? And fantasizing dumb about them here and there, um, which sadly in America and a lot of Western nations, actually all across the world, uh, sex has become very much so commodified. And so it's kind of like just an item that, you know, you can spend more money on. That way you can look more sexy and you could uh, go to all these different services for sexual whatever you want, right? Uh, and so sadly, sex has become far less. Do you mean literally paying for sex or do you mean like oh, a very general... all of these things to make you look better so that you can get sex? Uh, less so actually paying for sex, although people still do that. More so the fact that just all of the t- totality of sex and lingerie industry and, of mm-hmm. course, the wicked porn industry, which is constantly, constantly using people who have been sex trafficked and taking them and putting them right in the porn industry. Uh, And I can talk about that for a while too, but just the modern use of sex as an item to be traded and sold and used to get people's attention to buy other items is utterly wicked. And it completely destroys people's understanding of what true sexual love is according to God and according to scripture. Mm -hmm. There's so many things coming up. And the first is like, you know, I think that I'm not saying that it's not a wicked industry and I'm not talking about porn, obviously that's terrible, but in terms of like the lingerie and all of the other like ways that 
commercialism has commodified sex. It's almost like the idea that, well, you said wherever it says in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply that that is sort of, uh, our it's human nature. It's the, it's survival. And Mm -hmm. so I think that it's almost like preying on the need for survival psychologically too, because it's like, if I don't find somebody to have sex with, then I die. Obviously there are a lot of steps in between, (laughs) but ultimately the thing that we're afraid of, if we don't get it is that we die. So it's, it's strange to hear to be having this conversation because to me, it's like, I mean, it sounds like those people know the Bible pretty well in that context. Cause they're there. They know exactly what to pull on in order to get people to care. It's true. It's true. And you know, you say it so well, because when you get down to the way that these very important things, cause again, the Bible is very clear that sex is a very important and beautiful and powerful thing. It is extremely important, actually. I think that's why the Bible holds it to be something that you actually wait for. Um, That way you can actually experience the totality of it and not be turned into an object before the relationship even begins, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, sadly, society and cultural, (laughs) a lot of cultures around the world take these things which are very human uh, and, and these very necessary things and they commodify it because if you need it and or you really want it, then it's a good way to make money. Right. And so like, you know, you can't even get water without really paying for it. Right. These very simple necessities. And, and that's really sad um, because these things, which have a very specific purpose and reason and time uh, are instead sold rapid fire to people for the sake of increased profit. Even if that person was super messed up because they had to spend a lot of money for this or they had they got this at the wrong age, right? Like the amount of 10-year-olds who are constantly exposed to uh, very upsetting, violent sexual material because of either commercials that make them think, oh, I guess that's, or movies that make them think, oh, I guess that's how all sex is. You know, this very aggressive, violent thing or literally all of the porn industry making people think that, you know, oh, it doesn't matter if they're younger than 18 or it doesn't matter if, they get hurt in the process, right? Um, sadly, Bible the Bible shows constantly that people take those things which are good and they pervert it for their own profit, their own gain. Well, David, yes. um, to wrap it up, I have a question. I already asked it, but I don't think I actually gave you the time to answer it, which is how do you know or when did you know that this is what you were going to stake your beliefs in. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, It's a little hard to find an exact time, but I feel the strongest point would have to be, I think about my second or third, second or third year in college, Um, which is so ironic because usually when uh, you hear about Christians going to very liberal colleges, uh, you hear about deconversion stories. But in my case, I feel like I actually had a far deeper, not conversion, but like transfer into the, the Bible and to scripture. Uh, in, in college, I saw what happens 
with people who live a life where there's no objective morality. You know, you can just say whatever you want and do whatever you want um, because there's no such thing as true good or evil. And I saw the lives people lived and how illogical it was, but they would state that they were wise because they went to an Ivy League. And it's like going to an Ivy League doesn't make you wise. It just helps with resumes a bit. But I've seen a lot of fools at Ivy Leagues. I can tell you that. Um, I saw so many people with these empty relationships that only revolved around sex. I saw so many people who staked their beliefs about what was good or evil based off the newest trend in the last five or 10 years, right? These constant, constantly changing things. And the more I dove into scripture around the second year of, of college, the more I found far greater consistency and truth in God's word. And the moment that you accept that God is God, you also accept that he knows better than, than, than oneself does, right? I don't know the things God knows. I know because in the book of Isaiah, it says, as high as the heavens are from the earth, are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. And I'm like, you're right. You know, like that's just facts. I'm, I'm like 23, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not this like pre-temporal, immaterial, omnipowerful, complete and totally perfect being. I'm just like some Puerto Rican dude from Youngstown uh, who likes biology and scripture, you know, like I'm not, I'm not this brilliant, perfect person. And so I think it really was in college that, you know, I was away from my home church, which also was in a weird way helpful and that I can see what my faith was simply by reading scripture, not as much by, you know, the culture I was raised in, although I loved that culture. Um, I had this chance to truly just dive in and see how the world that the kind of person God explains and God desires as it compared to the lives that students around me were living. Um, actually, honestly, even the life I was living for the first like year and a half of college, I was just really not in a good mental space, really messed up. So focused on like trying to achieve and have the highest this or that, or being way too focused on relationships because people said that's how you get value and all this stuff that when you read the scripture, you realize this is just temporal nonsense, right? This is transient, you know, I, Oh, good. I got a 90 on my test. And so that's it, David, you only got a 90. Yeah. I only got a 90. What I happened was to the other 10 so points? <laughs> I, I think I like fell asleep something. And it's like, I said, Oh man, mitochondria is the what I'm like, I don't care anymore. I don't know. <laughs> the energy center. It's true. I, I totally dropped the ball on that mitochondria thing. Or no, that was like a neuroscience. <laughs> it was my first neuro exam. I got a 90 out of 100 and I cried. Like, I was, uh, it's the first oh. 90 I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so bad. I like it was a, it was a good score. And I was just so fo focused on getting like the top score and all this yeah. stuff. that I was just pathetically upset with being just content with life. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think seeing that hyper-academically focused, hyper-secular environment, by the grace of God, somehow pushed me for further towards him and farther away from those things I was constantly surrounded by. Um, and in that, in the last two years of college, I, I found a lot more peace. I found a good, um, a pretty good Christian fellowship, you know, a couple good Christian fellowships. And I had really good conversations with people about God. and. I just realized that he's the truth. 
There is none who is except him. That's why he says he is, he is the I am. And if I root myself in him, I find peace. Uh, as much as, as much grief as I find, I also find peace, you know, and mm-hmm. as much sadness as I find as a Christian, you know, being called foolish by many, I find confidence in him, you know, not me as a great intelligent person, not at all. My confidence is not rooted in myself at all. If, if I rooted my confidence in myself, then not going to lie, something's going to happen and I'll lose my confidence. And then my, who I am, I'm destroyed, um, which did happen in college, actually. But if I root my confidence in the Lord, like God tells me to, then I will do as he says. But if I'm not the most intelligent or the most attractive or the strongest or the most wealthy, I don't care. Because all I want to do is to is to be loved by him and to love him. And I know he loves me because Jesus died on the cross for me, you know, and and he didn't even stop there. He, he, he said, I don't even, I don't even care if the grave is in my way. I'm going to love you. And, and, you know, he defeated death in the grave itself and said, nothing, not even death is going to stop me from loving you. So in the face of that kind of terrifying love, I'm left in awe only to bow before the Lord and say, you are God and I am not in all the days of my life. I will follow you. Um, so what are your, what are your plans moving forward? Yeah. with seminary school yes so i'm hoping to actually i think next yep next week next week the online classes for the first year start at southern evangelical and so first year will be online but second year i'll be there in person in north carolina and i'm hoping to get a master's in apologetics which is just uh the logical defense of a given position so i'll be going to christian apologetics which means I'll be studying a lot of old religions and some ancient Hebrew and Greek, hopefully, uh, in order to know how to logically defend and also to work towards some pastoral work uh, eventually. I really would love to be a pastor, uh, but if I could have a ministry kind of like what this is, Mm -hmm. where I can just have longer-term conversations with people about God, that would be literally perfect. Um, I feel like we never have a chance to have conversations with non-believers for more than, you know, 10 minutes a day, max, or like five minutes, but to have like an hour to just really hear people out and talk with them, that is so wonderful. And I think it, it's just a great platform for true, honest discussion. So I'm hoping to do something kind of like this in the future, actually. Yeah. I, I, it's definitely something like I, I would love to have you back on. I feel like we only scratched the surface and I think this is already one of the longer episodes that I've ever had. So I'm sitting here like, okay, what are we going to, where are we going to start next? Because I don't even, we did, we barely got into evolution. Oh no. Um, Yeah. But evolution is like a good bit of the paper. It is. So probably like a third. Um, So we still need to talk about evolution. We need to talk about all of the things that you can get into in terms of the porn industry and sex trafficking. That sounds like a whole episode in itself. So definitely we're going to have you back, but I will say it's so, this is, as long as I've listened to podcasts, it's the belief of most people on those podcasts that this is such a great, form uh and platform to have these conversations 
but having my own, there is this like big sense of vulnerability to say, will you be on my podcast? Because there is this sense of needing to be invited to, for people to want to have the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not a, it's not an easy, this specifically is not an easy conversation to have with people who are adamantly defying a belief or feel like, who are you to want to like, talk to me or save me or lead me or guide me, you know, like that's, that's a tough um, position to want to be in. So cheers to you because not many people want to do that. Thank you. Well, I'm just thankful that first of all, you know, uh, we were able to see each other again and then you invited yeah. me on because I, I love this. You know, I think this is, and I actually did listen to, I think about five uh, of the episodes, you know, over oh the course, goodness. just driving places here and there. Yeah. Uh, I think the last one I listened to was like about, were you in Palm Springs or something? Yes. I was uh, driving back from Palm Springs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and I actually really liked that episode a lot, uh, specifically felt very, even if it felt very last minute, I think sometimes I like those more. It, yeah. it just kind of feels less filtered, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I love this platform and I, and I'm so thankful that you brought me on. I'd love whenever your schedule's open and you want to record another one of these, we can totally Let's do it. That. Um, yeah. and you know, it's tough. It, it is tough. The conversations I have are almost always improvised. Mm-hmm. I was at Dunkin' Donuts in Rhode Island uh, after a tough day at the clinic, just typing for some seminary applications a couple months ago. And some people working at the Dunkin' Donuts because it was not a busy night came up to me and asked what I was typing. And then we got into a three-hour conversation at that point. Um, and it's not easy, actually, at all. Um, but by God and God alone, he gives... He gives me the courage to see that person and he helps me to learn how to love people mm-hmm. um, because I don't think I'm a very loving person, if I'm going to be honest, by myself. What? Uh, You're said, kidding. You, know, you are. I, I, <laughs> You're so sweet. I mean, I thank you. I, I, I might seem sweet, but I don't know if I'm always the most loving. You but know? I think that you have, I think that you have a heart that allows people to either in my case, invite, or in the case of these people at Dunkin' Donuts, be invited. That's not, that's, yeah, I don't know what your definition of loving is, but in my experience, you are absolutely loving. You couldn't not be, you come from the most loving family. This is a a wacky but loving family. My mom is a very wonderful woman, I I must say. Um, but no, I appreciate that. And I, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful that you actually have the courage to host this because it's just, you know, difficult to have these kind of conversations. And I have a lot of experience for a lot of months with people doing this, uh, yeah. not recorded, but just, in, you know, face to face. And so the fact that you're actually willing to have this conversation. You know, oh, of I, course. I, really- I knew when I started this podcast over a year ago now that I was like going to want different religious, like a person's relation. If this is a podcast about relationships, a person's relationship to God, to whatever God they believe in is foundational. So it can't be, it can't be uh, avoided or overlooked. Amen. Well said. That's true. Yeah. David, thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're going to have you back. 
I can't wait. You let me know and, and I'll be ready. And so nice to meet all of you. <laughs> um, have a great day. Good luck with everything. But I'm sure we'll keep in touch. We never really did keep in touch. But I think after this, we're going to start keeping in touch. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jacqueline Chantel. Sound production by Deb Daly and graphics by Alyssa Donaldson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and